Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. We started this year with the 10th North American Summit, or better known as the Three Amigos Summit, as well as with the first presidential visit to Mexico by a U.S. president in nine years. During three days, there were a series of trilateral meetings, as well as bilaterals between Presidents Biden and López Obrador and Prime Minister Trudeau. The summit was filled with important gestures and photo ops, yet many differences in key policy issues also arose. To speak with me about the importance of what really happened or did not happen, and what can we expect for the region going forward, that it is my pleasure to welcome Kelly Meeman, Managing Director at McLarty & Associates. Kelly previously worked at the office of USTR, and Juan Carlos Baker, former USMCA negotiator on the Mexico team and Undersecretary of the Economy. Kelly, Juan Carlos, Happy New Year and welcome. As the United States faces record numbers of migrant crossings and fentanyl killing more than 100,000 Americans last year, it was no surprise that immigration and border security issues received most of the attention. Nonetheless, the summit also aimed at repositioning North America as a unified region and to make it more competitive. Kelly, what was your take of the summit? Was it a political success for Biden or was it also successful in revamping North America? Thanks, Mariana, for the invitation to be here with you here today. With respect to the summit, I would say this. Political wins when it comes to North America, if we're defining that as political wins in the United States, those are tough because the issues that many American voters care about are the toughest issues, right? It's, it's migration. It's, you know, the, the, the toughest, toughest nuts to crack. What I would talk about when I focus on what I would call a very successful summit is North America. It's the second part of your question. What this summit did that I thought was just fantastic was it really reinforced what we started at the HLED in September which is prioritizing North America as a competitiveness zone. And if you think about where we've been on this path, right, of all the way from starting the NAFTA negotiations, back when I was an undergrad at Georgetown with Ken Smith, by the way, so, you know, it's a long time ago, you know, to, to today, you know, we've gone from this fear in the United States of the giant sucking sound of jobs going to Mexico. Yes, that's still a political concern, but we've gone from that dynamic being the driving dynamic to thinking about North America as a way that we can be more competitive, which, by the way, was the whole reason we did NAFTA in the first place, right? So I, I think that what the current dynamic has done with this you know, focus on nearshoring is it has really opened up the opportunity to have, at least with respect to North America, some more you know, candid conversations, some more I'll say reality based conversations because trade policy, you know, once you get into the political realm, you get into rhetoric and not reality pretty quickly. 
But I think that this move to try to move supply chains closer to home has been, you know, a real opportunity for us. And I think that the leaders seized it in the summit, looking at the issues around economic opportunity and supply chains, the announcement to set up these these task forces to look at specific areas where we can grow competitiveness and supply chains here at home with an obvious focus on the more strategic areas like chips, uh, like EVs. That is all a positive. And I think what will be really interesting to watch, Mariana, in the coming weeks and months is how that's implemented, what stakeholders at the table, and how can we really make this you know, opportunity a reality. It certainly appears like North America is back. And no doubt, the key issue to watch going forward is how will this vision be translated into reality? Now, before we talk about the specific commitments made during the summit, let me ask Juan Carlos what did not happen. Kelly spoke about stakeholders. As you know, prior to the summit, the private sector of all three countries sent a letter to the three leaders stressing the importance of abiding by USMCA commitments. Prime Minister Trudeau had said that he would be addressing the issue of Mexico's nationalistic energy policies, and even Jake Sullivan had linked the next steps of the U.S. government with any agreements made with Mexico. Yet, no specific announcement was made. Will any of our partners call for a panel regarding Mexico's energy, a key issue for North American competitiveness? Thank you, Mariana, for having me. I, just like you, I also read the declarations, the remarks by Prime Minister Trudeau and Jake Sullivan, but I think that it will be a little bit, I don't want to say naive, but certainly unexpected that the leaders of the U.S. and Canada would have made uh, such an announcement while in Mexico right after meeting with, with the president. So uh, I am sure there were some uh, closed door conversations, some private uh, exchanges among the leaders uh, in that precise topic. Uh, but certainly having such an announcement, it was not going to happen. Now, regarding the second part of your question, I think that another one of the elements that I uh, this one I did find surprising is the fact that in previous summits, there was a larger role given to other stakeholders, not only the private sector, but other stakeholders in general. I remember when I had the chance to participate in, in some of these summits in the past, that there was uh, you know, a keen interest of meeting with uh, you know, NGOs, the business community, certainly, but others in general. And this time around, uh, I, I saw very little of that. Maybe what was missing, to my view, it was a much more direct engagement with stakeholders. And, uh, and I think that this is key because, as Kelly was just mentioning us, any possibilities of this agenda moving forward uh, lies heavily on the participation of other stakeholders. I mean, without the participation of the private sector, all these competitiveness items, strengthening supply chains, creating or promoting new investments very likely are not going to happen if the private sector is not a, a part of the driving process. In terms of the last part of your question, which is going back to energy, how does this knit together with the rest of the agenda? If you see the sort of remarks or the commitments that are included in the part of energy and environment and energy transition and competitiveness, the key point or the common ground for all those topics, the link that holds everything together is precisely energy. 
if North America is not sustainable in, on energy, the possibility of having semiconductor investments, to, to just to quote any, it diminishes. If uh, North America does not come uh, with a new innovative process for going green, then we are not going to meet our, our targets in the Paris Agreement and so on. So what does it need to be done in the part from Mexico to avoid that uh, USMCA panel, a, a hypothetical panel on energy, and at the same time uh, move in those areas that are included in the statement, will basically change its policy. I, I believe that as of now, with um, the sort of decisions that we have seen from the authority, that is going in a clear opposite direction at the USMCA. Kelly, USTR usually follows a technical calendar or a more political one. Here's what I would say, and, and I'll, I'll maybe make a clarification because I've seen this misrepresented in the Mexican press a bit. So maybe just one point of clarification that, you know, back in October, when USTR decided to continue in consultations with Mexico on the energy issue. I want to reinforce that that's not uncommon. The timing for the, you know, when the window opens to be able to request a panel, that doesn't mean you need to request a panel that day. That doesn't mean you need to request a panel that week, that month. If you feel like you are making progress in the consultations, then you may continue to consult. So I, you know, I think that that's really important to highlight because I have seen it portrayed as a victory that, oh, the U.S. didn't take a panel. Well, the U.S. decided, which happens, which is very common. And I would say that is based on technical, not political considerations. They decided that they would be able to continue in fruitful discussions with the government of Mexico. Now, I no longer work at USTR. If I did work at USTR, what I would be thinking about right now is to what extent does the AMLO administration want to make those policy changes that Juan Carlos talked about? They're hard. And not only are they hard, but the AMLO administration has made some public statements that make it kind of hard to walk back. Right. So but at the same time, and let's set aside USMCA for a second. What's happening with Mexican energy policy is bad for Mexico because for any of the investments that are foreseen, not just in what was announced this week, but what is foreseen just, you know, overall, I mean, you know, Mexico could do everything wrong, fall out of bed in the morning and people would be investing in Mexico today. That's why the, the numbers are as good as they are right now in Mexico, because Every company under the sun is trying to figure out how to get their supply chains, if we're talking about U.S.-focused companies, closer to the United States of America. Mexico is perfect. This is, should be Mexico's moment. And it's not just that Mexico won't meet its, you know, green energy targets. Companies won't. Companies, because of the importance of ESG and stakeholders, have all made commitments to their shareholders, to their stakeholders, that they are going to meet green energy goals. And if Mexico is a huge part of a company's, and gosh, we hope it is, manufacturing footprint, then they need to be able to deploy green energy in Mexico. And, and, and that is complicated, obviously, in the current situation. So I would say, you know, having worked at USTR, as long as you feel like you're making progress in a consultation, you want to continue. And, I, and, and you want to see where, because the goal, let's be honest, if you've retaliated in a dispute settlement case, if we're talking about USMCA or the WTO, you've lost. Everybody has lost. The reason that you engage in a dispute settlement case is to try to move the needle and encourage 
better policy and encourage compliance, obviously, with your international obligations. So I, I would say that, you know, as long as USTR feels like they're making progress in the consultations and understanding that full compliance with a bow on top is going to be difficult for the AMLO administration, it makes all the sense in the world that you would try to, you know, move the ball forward as fast as you can, you know, get whatever policy adjustments that you can within the context of dispute settlement. However, those incremental changes are not what's good for Mexico. Kelly, let me put this in context. A panel against Mexico will not be the first under USMCA. In fact, the United States just a few days ago lost one requested by Canada and Mexico regarding the U.S.'s interpretation on content for auto parts. Will the U.S. abide by the rulings and make certain changes to the interpretations? This will certainly set an example and a tone for the other partners to follow. Completely agree. You know, a rules-based trading system means that the rules have to apply to everyone. And the determination was just made public yesterday. So I confess I haven't you know, spent a ton of time with it, but I did look closely at USTR's response. And I do think that it, you know, they were disappointed. They made that clear, obviously, whenever you lose a case, you're disappointed. Um, but what I thought was encouraging was they did not have the more aggressive, I'll put it that way, uh, response that USTR had when the determinations on the national security cases came down at the WTO recently, where it was very clear that the United States had no intention to comply. Had the U.S. response in the autos case been akin to those responses, I would have deep concerns. That is not what USTR did. USTR made it clear that they were not thrilled with the decision, but that there would be, you know, a path to conversation going forward, which again, that's the goal of dispute settlement is to try to find some sort of mediated resolution. Juan Carlos, we have spoken a lot about energy. What do you think are the other competitive advantages that Mexico brings to the table, particularly when we compare it to other countries in Asia and even South America? I would say that in the current context, where you know companies are uh, looking for places to edge the risk associated to certain factors, whether those are logistical, geopolitical, or what have you. I would say that what can Mexico can offer to other countries are, number one, and key and very important, the USMCA. And again, this is really important, and, and I'm sorry to be so obvious, but you know, other countries that are directly competing with Mexico, say, for example, Vietnam, do not have the unrestricted, unlimited, certain access that Mexico has, at least as of now, to the United States. Uh, well, Canada does, but we're speaking about that, that type of country, no? Also, if we see the way that now trade is perceived in Washington, and if we take closer look at uh, this new mantra that is being repeated by Ambassador Tai on the worker-centered trade policy, okay, we are going to see that the U.S. naturally, and the Congress, of course, in the U.S., is going to pay more attention to what other countries are doing when they do not have an agreement as modern as it is the USMCA. So because the USMCA represents the new political consensus around trade in Washington. So everyone else, whatever uh, actions are currently being done or will be done 
by other countries will be measured against the USMCA disciplines. So knowing that, it's a great advantage for companies to be here because you will be already operating on the mind frame that Washington is looking at. Second advantage that I, that I believe it's important and something that we advise our clients here at the firm all the time is that, you know, at the end of the day, Mexico's labor, Mexico's manufacturing base, Mexico's even, even legal regime, everything it has been tailored and geared to do business with the U.S. because that's what we've been doing for more than three decades. Even before the USMCA wow. kicked in, well, the NAFTA was this major break, breakthrough in the regional North American relationship. So it is, it is useful to, to have that knowledge and it is useful to know that you can literally hit the ground running if you, if you set up a plant in Mexico, as opposed to what could happen to you if you go to Malaysia, Vietnam or, or other countries in general. No, I don't, I don't really want to, to point that. No. So it's the USMCA. Second is the years long experience that Mexico as a country uh, has had with the United States, no? And well, obviously, if you see how even, um, I, I want to be very careful in how I frame this, the concerns that exist in other parts of the world, very long supply chains that can be broken at any point in time in the middle of the Pacific, or the possibility of an escalation on a military conflict, or, you know, that sort of uh, preoccupations that around the world in other places are very common and are uh, incorporated into the equation when doing a, a greenfield investment, some of those are not present in Mexico. So that's, uh, that's certainly an environment that companies might find useful. I'm not saying that Mexico does not present challenges. We have already spoken to some degree, to some length about them. But hey, we are still waiting for the figures of the 2022, close 2022. But I can tell you already that Mexico is going to experience a historical year in trade and investment in 2022. Mexico's trade in 2022 will surpass a very important mark, which is going over $1 trillion. Wow, $1 trillion. That is certainly an impressive number. It is actually the size of the Mexican economy. And in addition, last year, Mexico saw record numbers of foreign direct investment. So it appears that we are catching this nearshoring wave, even if by accident. Kelly, would you like to add something to what Juan Carlos was saying? What I think about and I think what economists think about is opportunity cost, which is if investment levels are at a certain level, where could they be if, if Mexico were able to take some steps to you know, alleviate some of the concerns that investors do feel about Mexico. I completely agree with Juan Carlos and all the benefits that he laid out 100%. That's why it's, this is really Mexico's moment, let's be honest. The other point that I would highlight that I do think investors look for, and that's regulatory certainty. That's you know being able to know that you have a predictable investment environment. We have spoken about the importance of certainty and the rule of law. Kelly, do you think that if all countries abide by USMCA, that is, that the three countries actually follow the rulings of all panels, that in 2025, when the Sunset Clause arises, that Congress will feel more comfortable to renew the agreement? The lovely Sunset Clause. Um, yeah. With, with Geneva as challenged as it is right now with respect to dispute settlement to be charitable, Dispute settlement in USMCA is vitally important. 
the institution of the dispute settlement mechanism in USMCA right now is really, if you're looking at this from an, from an American perspective, from a U.S. perspective, it is really our you know shining example. It is the best functioning dispute settlement mechanism right now. So to your question, Mariana, I think that we have to show that it has brought results. I would take it out of the U.S. congressional perspective, because that sunset clause is for all three of us, right? I, I think we have to, as North America, show that we have brought results, show that these dispute settlement processes have worked, have, have moved the needle for uh, our economies and, and, and for our people. Let me turn the conversation to another critical issue, lithium. Juan Carlos, as part of the recent agreements made at the summit, there is the need to identify and to map key strategic mineral resources in North America. What are Mexico's resources and how do this play with AMLO's recent nationalization of lithium? Certainly. The statement, the trilateral statement is, is rather vague in what it considers uh, strategic minerals or strategic materials. When we hear this concept out there, Basically, it means everything that it's necessary to get the digital economy ongoing. That is uh, anything from lithium, from rare earths, tierras raras, and other graphite and, and other similar materials. Now, Mexico has some proven reserves on, on some of these key materials. Lithium is the one that really comes to mind more often because of the deposits that exist in the north of Mexico, specifically in the state of Sonora, just next to Arizona. But that's not the only one. Uh, really, Mexico has had a very long mining tradition, a historical mining tradition, and we have our country has been blessed with some of those resources. The first challenge is going to be getting an agreement among partners on what we really are referring to. Now, second, once that is agreed, we need to start comparing the legal framework that exists to exploit those materials. Whereas in Mexico, as you mentioned, Mariana, recently lithium became part of a larger discussion in the context of the energy debate. And there was this decree that nationalized, quote unquote, lithium. And I say nationalized because it already belonged to the government. That was never in question. But the framework for that in the U.S. and Canada is completely different. And summing up. I think that this is a step on the good direction. I believe that having such a such language in the statement and having the bureaucracies of the three countries working in that direction is a positive step. There is some previous work that ideally should have been done earlier before before making this sort of announcement, but nonetheless this is where we are. And going forward, I think that uh, the most important piece for getting a strategy, a trilateral strategy ongoing will be to know what are the parameters, the perimeter on which uh, the countries can, can walk towards too, no? And that will be told or that will be defined by the sort of legal framework that each country has about that, those minerals and those critical materials in the first place, including the USMCA, because as much as the USMCA allows private participation in energy, which is the core of the US and Canadian concerns regarding Mexico's uh, energy policies, the same can be said about mm -hmm. lithium. So we do not want to do the energy debate twice over, but this time substituting electricity for lithium. No? So that's, that's very important as well. Kelly, there is another issue that needs to be addressed. 
In this case, it is emanating not from Mexico, but from the U.S. And they have U.S. partners and allies very concerned, which is by America. There are, of course, strategic industries that need to be protected and become more resilient, such as the semiconductor industry that we spoke about and others. But in order to compete with China, the U.S. will need more than protectionist policies. Withdrawing from TPP was seen by many as a gift to China, and Biden's Indo-Pacific framework does not include access to the U.S. market. As we said earlier, it is certainly one of the key advantages that USMCA brings to Mexico and Canada. But how can the U.S. build an even more competitive economy and win in the 21st century without using trade and market access to build strong alliances with other countries, especially in Asia? Thank you so much. Yeah, this, this is really, you know, the, the big question, right, is how are we going to frame how we pursue economic development as a country going forward, looking at this from a purely U.S. standpoint, right? But this is about much more, in my assessment, Mariana, than, than, than China. I think that the shorthand in Washington when we pursue policies where we are investing billions of dollars in R&D, in critical industries, the way you get that sort of funding approved in the U.S. Congress in this political environment today is to say China, because the only thing that politicians in this town can agree on right now is that beating up on China is good politics, right? So, so that's the shorthand. But the bigger picture is much more complex, not surprisingly. Uh, you know, we are really at an inflection point right now where, you know, it, it because China didn't become a market economy when we let them into the WTO, because Russia still invaded Ukraine, even though they had made commitments both in the UN system as well as the WTO, that would indicate that's not a great idea. It has us all questioning if this thesis that, you know, countries, you know, the Cordell Hull quote that everyone always says, you know, former secretary of state, countries that trade together, you know, where, where goods cross borders, armies don't. Really? Are we sure about that now? So, so that, it, that is causing an inflection point. I would say in the United States, in an environment where, yes, President Trump left TPP three days into his administration. But remember, candidate Hillary Clinton didn't say nice things about TPP either. So we have to remember that this is a moment where, in my assessment, trade negotiators in the United States, when we're talking about market access, which you referenced, trade negotiators in the United States over time, frankly, they've lost their social license to operate, right? They've lost that consensus that, yeah, go reduce those those market barriers, go in there. That's why we have this moment where the Biden administration is talking about worker centric trade policy, thinking about who are the stakeholders that are impacted by trade and how do we reframe things you know, in a way that both from a rhetorical standpoint and a reality standpoint is benefiting workers. I think that that's not only happening in the United States. And the other piece of it, and, and this was, of course, you know, really brought into focus with all of the supply chain challenges around the COVID epidemic, is that, you know, we all are thinking about globally, this isn't just a U.S. dynamic. How do we move those supply chains closer? The nearshoring, and, and I'll say this, you know, one person's nearshoring is another person's industrial policy is another person's import substitution. You know, I, I, thought, I thought it was really interesting in the press conference. You saw AMLO use the words import substitution. I think for a lot of us that have worked in and around Latin America for a long time, we have PTSD of, <laughs> right, from around ISI 
and it was kind of like, did we, did we agree to that? And I, I know myself, one of the first things I did when I like grabbed the, the joint statement, I was like, we didn't say ISI, did we? You know, no, okay, we didn't. Different countries are going to talk about this in different ways. But as we in the United States pursue industrial policy, and this isn't, you know, we're not, industrial policy has been pursued by Europe, it's been pursued by Brazil, it's been pursued by Korea, it's been pursued by Japan. This is not a new thing. Let's, let's be clear about that. And in the United States, I mean, let's back in the 80s, we were talking about chips in the 80s, weren't we? Let's talk about the Cold War. That's when we started investing in DARPA. You're welcome, internet and GPS. You know, so, so investing in R&D as the United States is something that, frankly, we haven't done enough of in recent decades. So I do think the pendulum needed to shift a bit for us, actually, as a country saying, look, we have to invest in, in, in domestic R&D. We have to be sure that we are making our industries more competitive. Now, the important thing is we can't let that industrial policy nearshoring veer into protectionism. Because if we do that, Mariana, we're in big trouble because it what has allowed us as not just North America, but as a globe, you know, as a world to 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 grow post World War Two is this rules based trading system is this predictability that it you know really brought into foreign investment. And so I think we're all you know, we're treading new ground right now. In the context of this new international trading system, in which significant investment decisions are being made, and if we consider the record numbers of FDI and trade that you mentioned before, is it your sense that investors are taking into account the fact that AMLO's term will end in 17 months, and that whomever becomes the next president of Mexico will have at least to be more pragmatic? Yeah, I would certainly agree that uh, investors are looking at the long term. And in that equation, obviously, the possibility or the reality that a new government in Mexico will be inaugurated in 17 months, that is just assumed. I believe that perhaps in my mind right now, more importantly to the, the decision to, to allocate uh, or to, to invest in Mexico, there are two things that perhaps right now are more important than when AMLO's term finishes. And the first one is, as we refer a few moments ago, on whether the USMCA partners, parties are going to uphold the decisions of the panels. I mean, I was also encouraged, just as, as Kelly, on the response by USTR on the rules of origin and in the automotive sector panel decision. I mean, it would have been really, really uh, distressing if the USTR had said differently. I mean, that that just a couple of sentences in a press release had the potential to freeze investments for a few years in the automotive sector. Now, you know, we might have tweaks here and there or, or negotiations that we don't hear about. But now Toyota, Nissan, Ford, all of those companies know that what they have been doing for the past three years is correct and they can continue doing so. So that is that is really a huge plus. If, hopefully not, knocking on wood, but if uh, a panel comes on energy and rules are that Mexico is in non-compliance of the USMCA and Mexico fulfills its obligations, well, that ironically would also be a great, a great boost to investment because it will dispel this idea that Mexico is not playing by the rules. So uh, rather than when does AMLO goes uh, or not, I think that the investors are looking at that how on the surface, 
like this summit that we just saw, you know, everything is well and uh, uh, smiles and pictures and leaders hug each other or talk for a very long period of time. But, you know, in, in looking into the weeds, really what investors are seeing is, are these guys for real? Are these guys really going to, you know, maintain and a stable, solid framework that allows for me to put money in those, in those countries as well. Unfortunately, we have come to the end of this episode, and I would just close by stressing a point you both have made. The most important thing for North America to take off is not internal politicking, but protecting the institutions that ensure the rule of law and give certainty to investors. Juan Carlos, Kelly, thank you very much for this interesting conversation. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog of 